Before we get into the actual study, I want to do just a quick little recap on what we've learned about Joseph so far. For those who are new, or maybe you've forgotten, it's been a while since you've been in your study. Um, So this will just take a few minutes, and then we'll dive right in. But we are going to camp most of the time in Genesis 44, 18 through 45, 8. So we're not going to be doing a lot of flipping back and forth. I do give a lot of scripture reference, but you don't necessarily have to turn there. Okay, so when Joseph was 17... He had a dream that his entire family would bow down to him, which did not help his brothers like him anymore. They already resented him because he was the favorite in the family. Um, Jacob, Joseph's father, had given him a multicolored tunic to show his love for him, which did not help his brothers like him anymore. They already knew he was the favorite, but that definitely caused some added resentment. One day they plotted to kill him and ended up throwing him in a pit despite Joseph pleading and begging for them to pull him out. Reuben, one of the older brothers, had even planned to return and pull him out later. But as a group, they decided that rather leaving him in the pit to die, they would sell him to some Midianite and Ishmaelite traders who were on their way to Egypt. Once he was in Egypt, Joseph was sold to Potiphar, Pharaoh's captain. Later, or the brothers later told their father that a wild beast had killed and eaten him, given, giving their father the evidence with his, cut, his coat covered in blood. Despite his circumstances, God blessed Joseph and he grew in influence and prominence. In this time that he was um, under Potiphar and also in jail later, he was being educated, he was being groomed for what God later would have for him. So even though it wasn't what Joseph would have wanted, and even though I'm sure he had longing in his heart to go back home to his family, he was trusting God through this whole process. After multiple advances and multiple declines from Joseph, Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of rape, which got him thrown into prison. While he was in prison, God gave Joseph the ability to interpret the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer who were also in prison with him. But many years had passed before the cupbearer remembered Joseph and told Pharaoh when Pharaoh had some troubling dreams that no one else was able to interpret. Joseph was released from prison after he had told Pharaoh what his dreams meant and that a famine was coming and that he needed to prepare and get ready. Joseph was given the job, the top position in the land in charge of getting everything ready. Joseph led the preparations for the famine And when the famine arrived, Egypt was prepared, very, very well prepared. People from all over the world traveled to Egypt to buy grain, including Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers did not recognize him, as it's now been 20 years. And, undoubtedly, Joseph looked like a well-groomed Egyptian, but Joseph recognized them. Joseph accused them of being spies, and he even keeps Simeon back as being as a type of collateral, as he sends his other brothers home to Canaan with food and orders to return with their younger brother, brother Benjamin. Joseph told them that unless they return with their youngest brother, which also happened to be the only full-blooded brother of Joseph, Simeon would remain in chains. When the brothers returned to Canaan, Jacob did not want to send Benjamin. And remember, Jacob's the father. He didn't want to send Benjamin as he had already lost Joseph. But he eventually and reluctantly complied as the famine continued and there was no food and no other choice. 
When Joseph sees his brother Benjamin for the first time, he has no he has to excuse himself as he goes and weeps in another room, overcome with emotion over seeing his brother for the first time. After Joseph composes himself, he provides a feast for his brothers and even places them in order of their age, which causes the brothers to question how anyone could possibly know that. Joseph sends his brothers on their way, sacks filled to the brim as much as they could carry and with their money in the mouth of their sacks. However, Joseph also instructed his steward to place his silver cup in the bag of his younger brother's bag, which is Benjamin. When the brothers were barely on their way back home, Joseph instructed his steward to overtake them and search their bags, accusing them of stealing. When the brothers were confronted, they all denied any guilt and even said, how could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die and we will also be the Lord's slaves. Starting from the oldest to the youngest, all their bags were searched. When he got to the last bag, Benjamin's, Benjamin's bag, the cup was found and the brothers were all in agony. They tore their clothes, loaded their donkeys, and returned to the city. Falling before Joseph, Judah says in verse 16 of chapter 44, Judah says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he, also with whom the cup was found. And then Joseph replies, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. So now we're going to start with our lesson, but let me pray first. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the life of Joseph that you've given us to ponder and study. And I just pray that you will bless this uh, teaching as I share with these lovely ladies. I pray you will open our hearts and minds to what you would have us to learn. And give us the courage and the determination to obey what your word says, Lord, and put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to get right into Genesis 44:18, and I'm actually going to read the entire section all the way through 34. Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. For if our youngest brother is is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless your youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, 
You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave." Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. This was the longest speech in the Bible of any of Jacob's sons and marks the turning point between Joseph and his brothers as he can see that their hearts have changed. In a display of humility, Judah refers to Joseph as my Lord seven times and even referred to himself and his family as Joseph's servants 12 times. This confession from Judah's mouth was amazing and precisely what Joseph had been waiting for, a change of heart. In speaking for his brothers, Judah did not attempt to justify himself or the others, nor does he even try to pass the blame to Benjamin. Not showing any concern for himself, he tried to convey the harm that would come upon their father if he lost another son, causing him to grieve to death. So now I'm going to read uh, Genesis 45, 1 through 2. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph, overwhelmed at his brother's words, reveals his identity. The NLT translation says, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. Joseph cleared the room of all the Egyptians, all the stewards, servants, and slaves. Suddenly, they see this man, the Egyptian official, a man second only to Pharaoh, break into tears. He broke his silence in both words and language, for he spoke to them for the first time in Hebrew, saying, I am Joseph. Joseph wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him, and words soon got to Pharaoh's palace. The first words out of Joseph's mouth, other than, I am Joseph, were, does my father still live? He did not ask them why they sold him 20 years prior. He did not even ask for an apology. Joseph's priority was to be reunited with with his father. I believe this is a clear illustration of how God wants us to long for him. Is this where our priorities lie? Is being in fellowship with God our main concern? I'm going to share a little bit about my life, so I hope that I don't get too emotional, but forgive me and be patient if I do. (laughs) Uh, My parents divorced when I was seven. 
When my mom remarried, it was not long before we moved away out of the state, away from my dad. As a young girl, I would daydream about my family being back together. I always longed to be closer to my dad, as the occasional summers and holidays simply were not enough. My dad also remarried, and my parents both started new families with their new spouses. By the time I was 13, when we moved to Arizona, we had moved six times in just six years. My sisters and I, and I'm one of four, I'm the third of four, my sisters and I not only had to learn how to adjust and adapt quickly in our new surroundings, but we had to figure out where we fit into these two very different families, as there's now 10 kids altogether. I went to live with my dad and stepmom for a year when I was in high school, as I longed to be with my dad, closer to my dad. No matter how much time I spent with my dad, it always seemed like our time was cut short. I just needed more time, my own time. I have known and loved Jesus since I was a little girl, which has given me so much assurance throughout my life. Through many traumatic childhood events, I never once doubted that God loved me. Never once did I think that God had forgotten me or that he didn't care about me. Not once. However, although I knew in my mind that my parents loved me, I often felt unimportant, overlooked, and at times even unwanted. What I have come to realize as an adult is that the time and space that I so desperately longed to have with my earthly father was really the crying of my heart for my heavenly father. Only Jesus could fill those voids. Only he could give me the comfort and security that I craved. God created families and the roles of parents for a purpose. God hates divorce, not only because it gives away to sin and allows Satan to have a foothold, but it diminishes the value that God has placed on the head of the family, which is the father. My dad was my earthly representation of God. which is why I so longed to be with him, and why when I was with him, I was often left feeling heartbroken over our shattered and scattered family. My genuine but misplaced desire was definitely too heavy of a weight for him, and it wasn't until I attended my very first Bible study on the patriarchs that the words of scripture literally seemed to lift off the pages and come in a come alive in a way I had never experienced before. I fell so in love with Jesus and with the word of God. I also came to realize that for over 20 years of my life, I had been searching and longing for the wrong father. I love my dad dearly. Please don't misread me, but there's nothing like... Maybe I shouldn't have separated these pages. There's nothing like the security that comes from knowing and being known by our loving God. Nothing. Recently, my dad had open heart surgery. On the day of his operation, I was fasting and praying and also trying desperately to keep myself busy with tasks. We were told that his surgery would be about three hours. He lives in Nebraska, too, so I couldn't just be at the hospital pacing and waiting. The surgeon even took him back early. 
My stepmom did a phenomenal job of keeping us informed, but after three hours, I started to grow anxious. I didn't want to be that person who was constantly texting and calling. But after three and a half hours, four hours, four and a half hours, okay, this is enough. So finally, with nothing else to clean or do in my house, (laughs) I went straight to my Bible, which is what I should have done first, okay? I went straight to my Bible, and with my bookmark in the pages of Genesis 45, and what are the first words that I read? Does my father still live? (laughs) Oh, I just bawled. (laughs) He did. (laughs) He did still live. Um, Not only did I know in that moment that God cared about me by reassuring me through his word, I also needed to be reminded that God was busy. He was working, and this was a time that called for me to just be still and trust. When my 13-year-old got home from school, the first words out of his mouth when he walked through the door were, is grandpa still alive? But more importantly, how long was he dead for and did he see Jesus? (laughs) For those who know Evan, none of this would be surprising to hear. The night before my dad's surgery, we spoke with my dad on speakerphone and my dad explained in great detail, far too much detail for me, how the surgery was going to take place. They would actually stop his heart, hook him up to a machine that would pump his blood through his body, then, God willing, hook him back up, and he'd have a fully functioning heart again. Sounds so easy, right? So why would Evan think that he died and saw Jesus? Well, he's heard in church many times that a day on earth is like a thousand days in eternity. So a few seconds of being disconnected must have been worth at least a few hours in heaven, right? Plenty of time to see a couple loved ones who had passed, and especially Jesus. Stunned by his logic, I told him that he could just ask Grandpa for himself when he talks to him on the phone. But all I really cared about is that my dad was alive. Okay, so now let's get back to Joseph and his brothers. See here. Okay, despite Joseph's query about their dad, his brothers were terrified. Joseph was alive, and he had the power to kill them for what they had done to him. If you can read Genesis 45 and not be caught up in the same imaginary journey, you have not done justice to Joseph's biography. Most people would seek revenge, or in the very least, make them sweat it out a little, but not Joseph. The brothers were dismayed in his presence, speechless, stunned, and frightened. So Joseph called them closer. Please come near to me. Doing this demonstrated the close intimacy and fellowship Joseph longed to have with his brothers, an intimacy and fellowship that God wants us to have with him. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. How heavy were those burdens that Joseph's brothers had been carrying for all that time? I can't even imagine the weight of the guilt. And did Benjamin even know? Did he also think his brother was dead? That's something we don't really know, at least that I could find. So I'm going to read Genesis 45, 5 through 8. But now, 
Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. But God, those two words change everything. Joseph could not have spoken those words of reassurance if he had not already fully forgiven his brothers. You cannot genuinely embrace a person you have not fully forgiven. Joseph understood and explained that God had sent him to Egypt so that he could preserve their lives, not seek judgment against them. This historical narrative is important as it teaches us that God keeps his word no matter how seemingly impossible the fulfillment might be. God had promised that the sons of Israel would be blessed and would be a mighty nation multiple times in Genesis 12, 15, and then in 49. If the sons of Israel had died in the famine, as they surely would have without Joseph's deliverance, then God's covenant promises would have been broken and God would have been a liar. God kept his word, even using the unrighteous deeds of some to accomplish his plan. What they meant for evil, God used it for good. God is in control and he is trustworthy. I don't know what goes on inside your mind, the memories that haunt you or the pain you live with because of somebody's wrongdoing. But I have lived long enough to know that most of you at one time or another have been treated, treated badly by someone and by someone you should have been able to trust. When this happens, it's easy for our perspective to become cloudy. You remember the manipulation. You remember the wrong. You remember the unfair treatment. You remember the torturous trauma, the rejection, the neglect. Evil was done to you. Maybe it was even meant to be evil. There's no time to deny it. Jesus didn't, or Joseph didn't. Jesus didn't either, but Joseph didn't in our story. He said, you meant it for evil. There was nothing good in their motives. But God, but God meant it for good. I'm sure if we shared our stories, we would be here all day long and through the night and into the morning talking about how God blessed us through tragedies, pain, and disappointments. We should, if we have an eternal perspective, also be able to say that those situations, although they are so painful, brought us closer to God, strengthened our relationship, and helped us to trust in him even more. Perhaps there were some there are some who are still trying to see and understand God's hand in a tragic and painful situation. And I want to assure you that God does have a purpose and a plan. God allowed those things to happen to Joseph so that he could save his people. And God allows things to happen to us too. There's a popular country western song that many of us know called Unanswered Prayers. And the main chorus goes like this. And I always have to cringe because the, the grammar is not accurate. So I feel my mom in the back of my head saying, don't say it like that. But it doesn't rhyme if I don't say it like this. So sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs that just because he doesn't answer 
doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. A good example of God's faithfulness, even when we are faithless or in doubt, is found in John 4, 46 through 54. In the story of the noble man who hears of the miracles that Jesus has performed and tracks him down to ask him to heal his sick son. In the story, he pleads with Jesus, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Then Jesus told him, go back home. Your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said and started home. While the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, Yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that, that that was the time that Jesus had told him, Your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. Faith is hearing God believing God, and acting on what he says. The noble man listened to Jesus. He believed him, and he did what he said to do. Adrian Rogers, a well-known pastor who has now passed away, says that there are four steps to having strong faith. Number one, you must hear the word or listen to it. Number two, you must believe Romans 10.14 tells us, But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And then Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ. In order to have faith, you must know what God has said and what he is saying. Faith is a response to the word of God. In verse 49, the nobleman believed the word. People want something to believe, and so we must give it to them, and that's through the word. Number three is you must obey the word. He acted on it, quite literally. He went. He lived approximately 20 miles from where he found and spoke to Jesus. His servants met up with him and spoke with him, confirming that his son was healed in the exact time that Jesus told him. And the fourth um, step to having faith is resting in the word of God or trusting in it. Take his word for it. The noble man took an entire day to get back to his son and family. Yes, it was possibly 20 miles, but seeing as how he had a high status in society, he probably was not traveling by foot, but rather by camel, which can travel a lot faster and at a much quicker pace than he could have. He was taking his sweet time. He was resting and trusting in the word. He believed in the healing and in salvation. The example of Joseph, who because he trusted in God, was able to understand God's big picture plan and forgive his brothers. Even though they had caused him great harm, even though they had caused great harm to Joseph, God did not abandon Joseph. Rather, they responded with hate and anger. Joseph was able to respond with love and forgiveness, being a blessing to those who had intended to destroy his life. Joseph came to realize that what his brothers had meant for evil, God meant for good. God provided for 
Joseph's brothers, even though they acted evilly. If God works in our lives in this way and cares and provides for us, even when they are... I'm sorry, I'm going to read that again. If God works in our lives in this way and cares and provides for us, even when we are behaving in an unloving way, then we, like Joseph, should care for those who are being unloving towards us. Joseph forgave his brothers, even though no one outright apologized to him for what they had done 20 years prior. I have heard it said that if what you're saying can't be summed up in one or two sentences, it's not worth saying at all. So here's a short summary of what we've learned from Joseph so far. Greatness is revealed mainly in our attitudes. Charles Swindoll, in his book about Joseph, titled A Man of Integrity and Forgiveness, says that greatness comes in the sweet spirit attitudes of humility and forgiveness towards your fellow man. Joseph sets before us a magnanimous example, how beautifully forgiving he was, how generous in his mercy. Thomas Jefferson was correct when he said, when the heart is right, the feet are swift. Part of the reason why we are so sluggish in carrying out the application of God's truth is that our heart is not right. When that is fixed, we are fleet-footed servants of God. Joseph shows us that the only way to find happiness or joy in the grind of life is to do so by faith. A faith-filled life means all the difference in how we view everything around us. It affects our attitudes towards people, towards location, towards situation, towards circumstances, and even towards ourselves. Only then do our feet become swift to do what is right. I forgot to mention, I don't go through every single verse of the Bible because there's so much in there to cover. And so because the main focus of the study was about forgiveness and reconciliation, I decided to just focus on those things. So um, in regards to reconciliation, perhaps someone has hurt you so badly that it's impacted much of your life. So badly, you're not sure you can ever forget, let alone forgive. Yet in your heart, you know you're supposed to forgive them. So how is this possible and why? Or maybe it's you that's done the hurting. You've righted the wrong as best as you could, moved past it, turned your life around, made peace with God, and yet somehow you can't seem to forgive yourself for the hurt you've caused other people. We have talked a lot and learned about how trusting that God's divine plan is better than ours. We know we need to forgive those who have wronged us, but what about reconciliation? How does that coincide with forgiveness? Is reconciliation with God different than reconciliation with a family member or a friend? What if the other person doesn't want reconciliation? What then? Well, I don't have all the answers, but I do have some. Forgiveness does not require anything from the other person. But reconciliation cannot happen unless both parties cooperate in the process. Reconciliation has much to do with transformation. It's the moving of a place of separation, hurt, and brokenness to a place of healing, wholeness, forgiveness, and reunion. The Greek word for reconciliation is katalage, which translates to adjustment of a difference or restoration to favor. While the Hebrew word is kafar, 
which translates to cover over or atone. It's taking the wrong and covering it with the cleansing power of God, restoring it to a new state of transformative unity with the Lord. Reconciliation is merging two separate, closed-off pieces into one unit. Throughout the pages of the Bible, we see God, in his great love for humanity, extending many opportunities for people to find their way back to him. From Moses leading the Israelites to the, through the promised land, or to the promised land, to prophets like Jonah, who were called by God to offer warnings and teachings. But only through Jesus do we see God's true and ultimate message of reconciliation, our path back to him and to wholeness. It is more than just forgiveness. It is acknowledging the need for forgiveness and then allowing transformation and unity to occur. The whole message of the gospel is one of reconciliation. A people who sinned over and over against God were given Jesus to believe in, model after, and follow so that in their faith and following, they could uncover their path back to God. Only in Jesus can we have that wholeness and perfect healing. Jesus told his disciples in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Romans 5.10, Jesus offers reconciliation by paying the debt of our sins. He died on the cross for us, which Romans explains, that reconciled us to God. And when we make the decision to have faith in him, then we are saved. It is a choice. Reconcile with God and be one with him through Christ or spend eternity apart from him. The Bible tells us, Our reconciliation can only come through Jesus. In the Bible, God has several names. One of these names is Jehovah Rapha, which translates to a God, to God who heals. The God who heals restores us to wholeness in him. He provides the way to that unity and wholeness in Jesus, who the apostle Paul calls the chief cornerstone upon which God's household is built. And that's in Ephesians 20 or 2.20. To begin reconciliation with God, we can look to what King David did after his great sin with Bathsheba. We can start by humbling ourselves and admitting our wrongdoings, understanding in our hearts that by sinning against others, we are ultimately sinning against God. However, we cannot be reconciled to God if we are not reconciled to others. Romans 12.18 says it perfectly, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. What God offers in forgiving us and wiping away every trace of our sin is not a gift for us only. As a member of God's household, we are all brothers and sisters with everyone else too. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 21, we are all one big body working together as a whole. There is no us and them. All are one. And we cannot be whole in God if we are not one with his other children. Jesus tells us that if we have an issue with a brother or sister, but approach the altar of God with a gift, we are to leave our gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. This is in Matthew 5.24. If you are seeking reconciliation with someone else and ultimately with God, there are some things you can do. First, Remember, the process begins with forgiveness. 
Offenders must confess their wrongdoing and repent, meaning to change their lives and live in a new way that is free from this wrongdoing. And those offended must forgive their offender if this happens. Jesus said it. Then, as hard as it might be, move on. Like, live like David with your life pointed towards God. Don't, don't allow your past to become chains. Embrace your new reality with an accepting and open heart. The words from Psalm 103, thought to be written by David, can also help. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. If reconciliation doesn't occur, the most common thing to happen next is estrangement. When Adam and Eve sinned, they became estranged from God in Genesis 3. People have been estranged from him ever since, and God has been pursuing reconciliation with us ever since. Estrangement from God and his call for reconciliation are the major themes of the Bible. When we come to our senses, we humble ourselves and confess our sin to him, as the prodigal son did. Only then can the estrangement end and reconciliation begin. Estrangement from God ends when we humble ourselves and repent, as we're taught in Acts 2, 38, and 3, 19. Estrangement from other people can often be ended the same way. However, pride is often the great culprit that keeps estranged relationships locked in a cold war. When one person chooses to end the standoff, confess the part he or she played in the estrangement, and ask for forgiveness, the relationship can often be restored. God promises to forgive and restore anyone who comes to him in the name of his son, Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus puts an end to estrangement from God for all who come to him in faith. John 1.12 gives us that promise. Here is the takeaway. Walk by faith, trusting God to renew your attitude and heart every day, every hour, and every minute. If you trust and believe in the full word of God, like James said in 122, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Walk the walk and talk the talk. Do your part and in time, maybe even years or decades, the other person will do theirs. God willing. While you wait, if you are in obedience to the word, you will carry with you the peace that passes all understanding that we read about in Philippians 4, 6. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Isaiah 40, 31. For many years, I only knew the NIV version. <gasps> and it goes like this. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. For many years, I was a runner, a marathon runner. So I would recite this over and over and over and over again in my head because I was quite literally running and trying not to be faint. <laughs> but it wasn't until I read the NLT version about 15 years ago that it really struck a chord with me. It reads, those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. This was interesting. Trusting in the Lord will give me new strength, a better strength. 
However, the New King James Version, as well as the ESV, I feel say it best. And it says, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Waiting is so hard and sometimes for so long. For Joseph, it was for 20 years. What are you waiting on? Are you waiting on a change in a loved one's heart? Are you waiting for an apology for someone who has hurt you? Those longings are not wrong, but they are things you and I have no control over. So while you wait, however long, let God transform and renew your heart and mind, washing it and renewing it with the word of truth. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 says, The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. In John 16, 30 through 33, Jesus reassures his disciples that their sadness over him going away for a while will be turned into joy. His disciples said, now we understand that you know everything and there's no need to question you. From this, we believe that you came from God. And Jesus asked, do you finally believe? But the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now. When you will be scattered, each one going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart because I have overcome the world. I do a lot of homework and research for for the um, things I want to share. (laughs) But just a couple days ago, I read a devotional that I wanted to share with you guys. And I just felt like God really wanted me to put this into the lesson if I had time. So um, my stepmom last year for Christmas gave me a one-year Bible. Um, but it was specific for praying God's word over your kids. And so every day there's scripture that follows along with a regular one-year Bible reading plan, but then there's specific prayers that you can pray over your children, um, young children or adult children, um, and then there's a devotional. And so I really, really enjoyed this one. Um, So I'm going to share this with you. It's called Turned Hearts. Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. The story that began in Genesis 1 with God's repeated blessing of all that he has made ends here in Malachi 4 with God threatening to come and strike the land with a curse. Yet couched in the threat is a promise. In the very last verse of the very last book of the Old Testament, we find an enormous dose of gospel hope specifically for parents. God promised his people that he was going to send someone who would preach his word before the Messiah came. As a result of the prophet's ministry, many parents and children would turn towards God. With their faith renewed, they would turn toward one another as well. Reconciliation with God would result in reconciliation between generations. Repentance would lead to healing for whole families. 400 years later, an angel appeared to a priest named Zechariah in the temple in Jerusalem and told him that his wife was going to have a son who they should name John. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. 
He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and he will cause those who were rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. That's in Luke 1.17. Just as the Spirit worked through his prophet John the Baptist to do a work in the hearts of parents and children in his day, the Spirit is still at work in the lives of the hard-hearted parents and hard-hearted kids to soften and turn their hearts toward one another. The power of God's grace is the hope of every parent and child longing for reconciliation and relationship. And so I'm going to end um, with praying Philippians 1, 9 through 11 over you ladies. I pray this over my boys um, almost every day. So, Father God, I thank you um, for this time this morning. Thank you for helping me to get through um, the lesson and what I had to share with these gals. I pray as they uh, go into their groups and have discussion and fellowship, Lord, that you will just be present, that you will be honored and glorified, and um, that they may have the courage to apply these hard lessons um, in their lives as they walk out the doors. And Lord, I just pray that we will continue to grow more and more. We will continue to grow in our knowledge of under and understanding. For I want them to understand what really matters so that they may continue to live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May they always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in their lives by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.